the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Warren Wearsby. He's written another book, Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word to help you figure out how to do it if you haven't successfully engaged in serious Bible study. He'll be joining us later in the five o'clock hour, and I'm looking forward uh, to that conversation. By the way, Dr. Wearsby has written over 175 books. I believe he's 88 uh, at this point. So he has been uh, active in uh, Bible work for a very, very long period of time. Somebody we might want to listen to. Well, the Senate uh, today voted 81 to 18 to break the uh, filibuster on the stalled government spending bill, clearing the way for Congress to approve the stop back uh, stop gap measure, which they did uh, this evening, their time. And in the three day government shutdown, well, Democrats effectively backed off their opposition after being given assurance from the majority Republicans of what I'm not altogether sure. Before the vote, Senate Minority Leader um, Uh, Senator Chuck Schumer made clear that Democrats would supply the GOP-controlled Senate with the votes needed to, in exchange for far and immediate efforts to consider legislation that would protect illegal immigrants brought to the United States as children. It was a stark contrast from his opposition just a few days ago. We will vote today, he said, at the time to reopen the government. Speaking of uh, New York uh, Democrat Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor, in a few hours the government will reopen, which of course it did. Well, the 100-member Republican controlled chamber needed only a simple majority to pass the temporary spending bill that would keep the government open until February 8th. The House would then have to approve the bill, sending it to uh, President Trump's desk. Well, the House this evening approved that bill uh, to reopen the government, sent the package to the president's desk to end the three-day government shutdown, um, and that passed 266 to 150 following votes earlier in the day in the Senate. Well, the temporary spending bill would keep the government open only until February 8th. The president Uh, is expected to sign the bill if he hasn't already done so today. Democrats agreed to reopen the government after they were assured by the Republicans. Um, I am pleased, said um, the president in a written statement, that Democrats in Congress have come to their senses and are now willing to fund our great military, border patrol, first responders, insurance for vulnerable children. And I know the thing to do is to point the finger one side of the aisle or the other. The Republicans say, look, in the Senate, we you can't do this with a simple majority. We didn't have the numbers. It's the Democrats' fault. The Democrats say, look, you have the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's your fault. Problem is that the House and the Senate have been unable to come up with a timely budget for I don't know how many years now, putting themselves in a position where a continuing resolution has been needed time and time and time again. And that, to me, is more frustrating than the political hay that's being made out of who's responsible for this uh, whole this latest debacle. Well, during a press briefing today, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders 
said the administration expects the bill to make it to the president's desk. Well, that's already been done. She put, uh, pushed back against the notion that uh, from Democrats that Trump wasn't doing enough behind the scenes during the shutdown. She said Trump was busy working the phones with lawmakers and cabinet officials and they even had a picture of him doing so. She went on to say the president was putting pressure and standing firm on exactly what he was willing to do and what he wasn't. The funding and reopening of the government would allow U.S. military personnel to be paid. In fact, one of my friends uh, who's in the reserve was actually stranded in San Diego. Uh, He was just appointed uh, to be a captain and couldn't get home because of the shutdown. I'm guessing he's on a plane today and hopefully uh, is home by now or will soon be. Uh, In the furlough of nearly one million federal workers, resume all federal services and operations. Congressional lawmakers made it clear today that they're still facing uh, challenges like how to fund hurricane disaster relief, craft a comprehensive immigration reform bill on which both parties can agree. And they have, you know, clear until what is it, February 3rd or is it the 8th? Uh, to pull all of that off. I mean, they've been there, you know, all this time, and now they have a couple weeks to try to make all of that happen. We still have a lot more work to do, said Captain Obvious, also known as Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa. Well, after days and weeks of blaming and finger-pointing, a bipartisan group of senators met on Sunday. They brokered the deal in which rank-and-file members would provide the 60 votes in exchange for Senate leaders' promise to immediately proceed to immigration reform, which they essentially were going to do anyway, given what the courts have said and what the president demanded. Democrats largely had opposed the stopgap spending bill because it didn't include provisions to protect illegal immigrants from deportation under the former president's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals executive order. Uh, The current president last year set a deadline of early March to end those protections, but has indicated he wants to provide permanent protections for young illegal immigrants, contrary to campaign promises, along with border security participating, or rather particularly funding, for his U.S.-Mexico border wall. So... For at least the next few minutes, and essentially when you look at the congressional calendar, it it adds up to a few minutes, Uh, they've resolved this particular issue. They haven't really funded the government uh, with a budget, but they have said we're going to put that off again after we put it off the last time, right before we put it off the time before that before it was put off right before then. Uh, And uh, essentially they're going to come up with a budget that will fund the government for a longer period of time. Or not. We'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, stocks hit fresh records today as Congress moved toward a three-day shutdown of the federal government. Apparently, the uh, stock market thought, look, if they're not in session, nothing's happening. Maybe we can make a little money. The Dow Jones Industrial Average average rather, gained 143 points to 26,214. The S&P 500 climbed 22 points. NASDAQ Composite rose 71 points. Traders reacted positively to news that the U.S. Senate voted to end the uh, Democrat-led filibuster, setting up a vote to extend government funding through February the 8th. So we can all sigh a great sigh of relief until February the 8th at which point it will all start up again. The houses uh, did, in fact, pass that bill uh, later today, and the shutdown wasn't averted, but at least it has ended. Well, in other news, after a decade of uncertainty and near-constant battles with federal and state regulators, TransCanada said on Thursday it plans to break ground on Keystone XL oil pipeline next year, delivering a huge win for the energy industry, laying to rest rumors it was on the verge of walking away from the $8 billion project. 
I can't imagine that they'll begin without a fight. But the Canadian company said it secured 500,000 barrels per day of uh, firm 20-year commitments, meaning TransCanada believes the, uh, the pieces are in place to make Keystone financially viable for the next two decades. The company still has hurdles to clear. Most notably, it needs easements from dozens of Nebraska landowners with property that sits along the pipeline's route. And despite the challenges, uh, the news on Thursday is the surest signal in years that Keystone, which would carry oil from Alberta, Alberta, Canada, to refineries on the Gulf Coast will become a reality. When it breaks ground, Keystone will represent a major victory for President Trump, who revived the pipeline in March after it had been scuttled by the Obama administration over concerns about climate impacts. Over the past 12 months, the Keystone XL project has achieved several milestones that move us significantly closer to constructing this critical energy infrastructure for North America. A quote from Russ uh, Gerling, TransCanada's president and CEO. He went on to say we think President Trump and his administration or thank him for their continued support and appreciate the ongoing efforts of Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, the Nebraska Legislative and Congressional Delegation, uh, Omaha Federation of Labor, Nebraska State AFL-CIO, our customers and various stakeholders to advance this project, end quote. Nebraska regulators late last year approved a Keystone route through the state, though it was not the path TransCanada preferred, leading to speculation the company would pull the plug on the pipeline, they did not. The statement uh, Thursday seemed to confirm that the company is uh, content with the route approved by Nebraska's Public Service Commission and regulators already have rejected TransCanada's position to re- uh, petition rather to reconsider that route, meaning the company essentially has been forced to accept the permitted path or scrap the pipeline, which apparently they are not now going to do. Speculation at this point ended. 16 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Also want to remind you that uh, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Warren Wearsby. He, uh, you might recognize the name. He's been a broadcaster for many, many years. He's the author of more than 175 books, and we're going to talk about his latest. By the way, he's about 88 years old. He's as spry as uh, uh, one would hope to be. Uh, his book is titled Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word, and we're looking forward to uh, to talking with him. I want to remind you that this coming summer, you can join Alistair Begg and fellow like-minded believers for the Reformation Tour and River Cruise. You can visit vast, uh, fascinating historical sites that played an integral role in the Reformation, including European villages, stately castles and churches, iconic cities like Leipzig, Vienna, and Prague. Your time in Europe will only deepen your love of the Bible and the church, so you can book your trip today. Join Teaching Pastor Alistair Begg for the Reformation Tour and River Cruise July the 31st through August the 12th. For details, go to kpdq.com. You can also call 855-565-5519. Sounds like a great, great trip. Well, the U.S. is well on its way to becoming a net exporter of natural gas for the first time in decades after breaking an annual record for oil production, according to the latest government data. The U.S. Energy Information Administration expects the U.S. to become a net natural gas exporter once it's uh, compiled all the data for 2017. The U.S. is sending more gas to Mexico via pipeline and shipping more liquefied natural gas overseas. It's good news for President Donald Trump's administration, which has been promoting an energy 
dominance agenda for the past year. But the implications could uh, be far-reaching. Unleashing U.S. energy exports has the potential to upset long-standing geopolitical and economic arrangements across the world. So that's the other shoe that could drop. The Energy Information Administration expects the U.S. to have the third-largest gas liquefaction capacity in the world by the end of 2019, behind Gutter and uh, Australia, assuming all such projects underway are finished on time. The administration also expects a doubling of gas pipeline capacity to Mexico, further pushing uh, up exports. Well, that news came about after the administration released a short-term U.S. energy outlook this January. In that report, the statistics agency projected U.S. crude oil production averaged 9.3 million barrels per day in 2017. Production is projected to further increase through the next year, averaging 10.3 million barrels per day and breaking the record set in 1970 of 9.6 million barrels per day. Production could average 10.8 million barrels uh, per day in 2019, rivaling Russia. Russia and Saudi Arabia agreed in November to extend oil production cuts until the end of 2018 to keep prices up after the collapse of the summer of 2014, uh, though uh, with crude now hovering at $70 a barrel, some are predicting that agreement could fall apart. And again, the geopolitical implications of our productivity will be an interesting uh, side story to what's happening here. Well, paper and plastic are piling up at recycling centers all across the state of Oregon in the wake of China's refusal to take it. Uh, Already, the state has given a dozen recyclers permission to send the materials to landfills. The warehouse is full of mixed paper and plastics with nowhere to go. That's a quote from Galen McAllister of Garten Services, which provides recycling services for Marion County. Well, the crisis comes on the heels of a new report that shows Oregonians are producing more garbage than ever and recycling a smaller percentage of it. Well, I have to say the Rices are doing their part. We are carefully sorting through our wretched refuse every week and make sure that everything is in the right uh, receptacle. On January 1st, China stopped allowing many materials to be imported for recycling, saying contamination levels are too high. Uh, China has been the world's largest importer of recycled paper and plastic and took most of Oregon's recycling, but not now. The ban includes 24 kinds of solid waste, including unsorted paper, some types of plastic. It also set new limits on the level of non-recyclables allowed uh, in other wastes. Now, I have to admit, it can be increasingly difficult to know what to put in recycling, especially when you're talking about plastics. You see the little triangle on the bottom and you assume, oh, that's recyclable, but not necessarily in Oregon. You put it in, Dan Rice comes behind me, he takes it out, no, that's not recyclable. You consult the paper they send out once every three to six months uh, describing what you can and cannot put in, the, and it ends up, you know, it's midnight by the time you're finished, but nonetheless, it, it can be a challenge to get the right stuff in the right place. Well, the ban includes 24 kinds of solid waste. Uh, material recovery facilities have had to slow down down their processes to make sure that they're pulling more contamination out, says a Marion County Waste Reduction Coordinator. That's reduced the capacity of these facilities. They're doing what we're failing to do, apparently, at our receptacles. Oregon Department of Environmental Quality has been meeting weekly with counties and waste haulers to try to find alternatives. Marion County doesn't plan to ask DEQ for permission to throw away recycling materials, and this story is out of the uh, Statesman Journal, so most of it is focused on Marion, but it certainly impacts uh, Washington and Multnomah counties as well. Um, uh, we kind of need to, to weather this storm and figure out how to get us through till things get better. That's a quote from 
the uh, Environmental Services Division manager. Now, things will get better if China begins to take the recycled materials again, but only after it's sorted better. And that either has to be done at the level of our homes or it has to be done at the level of uh, the county that sorts through what we send to them. And it's... uh, to put it mildly, something of a big mess. Again, China saying, hey, we're not taking U.S. recycling. It's not, uh, it's not clean enough, uh, if you will. For example, if you have oil or wax or something in, in glass or uh, the paper is, is wrong or the, it's the wrong sort of plastic and it's not sorted properly, it makes it more challenging at the other end. So I guess we'll have to stay up till 1230 a.m. sorting through our stuff to make sure we get it even righter, if such a word exists. Well, two men have launched a campaign to divide rural California from the coastal cities motivated by what they refer to as a tyrannical form of government that doesn't follow the U.S. Constitution or the state constitution, the San Francisco Chronicle is reporting. Unlike the failed 2016 campaign to split California into six states, the New California Movement, founded by Robert Paul Preston and Tom Reed, seeks to consolidate rural California into a, a distinct economy separate from the coast. I suppose there are Oregonians who would like to do the same. After years of overtaxation, regulation, monoparty politics, the state of California and many of its 58 counties have become ungovernable. That's a quote from the New California Movement. Well, Preston and Reed say that citizens of the state live under a tyrannical form of government that does not follow constitutional requirements. There's something wrong when you have a rural county such as this one and you go down to Orange County, which is mostly urban, and it has the same set of problems and it happens because of how the state is being governed and taxed. Uh, Well, the uh, founders have evoked Article uh, 6, Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution as justification for establishing a new economy with a new state constitution. It states that a consensus must be reached by the state legislatures of California as well as Congress. The process, according to New California representatives, could take 10 to 18 months or years. The New California Movement unveiled a Declaration of Independence earlier this uh, last week that called for a free and independent state with full power to establish and maintain law and order to promote general prosperity. So uh, be prepared to have the the flag of the United States changed with a 51st star. Well, the co-founder of the opposition research firm Fusion GPS told House Intelligence Committee last uh, November uh, that people were arrested or died mysteriously after the extensive Uh, The existence, rather, of the new uh, infamous Trump-Russia dossier was made public. However, Glenn Simpson didn't say whether those affected actually contributed information to the unverified dossier, which was compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele and which BuzzFeed published in January of last year. I do believe... He is uh, quoting uh, as uh, quoted as saying, I do believe there was a bit of an old fashioned purge, Simpson told the committee before adding to my knowledge. It wasn't anyone that helped us. I think it was more likely people who were taking the opportunity to settle scores or were falsely accused and or were sources of the U.S. intelligence community, not us. Hmm. Well, in August, Simpson's attorney told the Senate Judiciary Committee that somebody's already been killed as a result of the dossier's publication, but didn't identify who the person was. The committee voted unanimously on Thursday to release the transcript of his six-hour November 14th appearance before the committee, one of three congressional panels investigating Russian action during the 2016 presidential election campaign. Well, Simpson told the committee that he and uh, Steele began shopping the dossier to media outlets 
outlets in uh, late October of 2016, after then-FBI Director James Comey announced that the Bureau was reopening the investigation into Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton's private email server. He said he was angry that Comey, in Simpson's view, had violated the sort of... uh, had violated one of the more sacrosanct policies, which is not announcing law enforcement activity in the closing days of the election. So this was in retaliation of uh, Comey's statements, apparently. However, Simpson denied that Fusion GPS leaked the dossier to BuzzFeed and told the committee he was not happy when it was published. I was very upset, he said. I thought it was a very dangerous thing that someone had violated my confidences, plural. Um, I'd say, in general, we were the architects of the research, and we made most of the decisions about what to look for and where to look, he said. Simpson also detailed facts Fusion GPS claimed to have uncovered about the president, then candidate. While the firm was uh, contacted by the conservative Washington Free Beacon to do research on then candidate Trump and other GOP contenders for the White House. Various uh, Russian criminals uh, were buying Trump properties, said Simpson, identifying one of the underworld names. Uh, I think he was... um, Uh, Running his association, he was living at Trump Tower, and he was uh, running a high-stakes gambling ring out of uh, that location while he himself was a fugitive for having rigged a skating competition in 2002 at the Salt Lake Olympics and a bunch of other sporting events. Sounds like a fascinating novel. I hope we can ultimately get to the bottom of it. And who knows, we might actually have a budget that's uh, on time. It's just a thought. 31 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you've always wanted to go to Israel, if you want to experience Israel, I want to let you know that Tony and Lois Evans are going to lead a tour. Experience Israel coming up this uh, this summer, I believe. Experience the legendary land of Israel with teaching pastor Tony Evans, his wife Lois, this, uh, this coming November. Let's get that right. Uh, for Experience Israel 2018, again, that's November. Imagine standing in the Sea of Galilee. Well, not in it, but being on it, exploring the remains of Nazareth, visiting Jerusalem, where every stone pathway leads you toward the life of Christ and the story of God's purpose on earth. With gifted musical guests, Anthony Evans and Meredith Andrews, your time in Israel is sure to be rich with spiritual meaning and impact. For details, you can visit kpdq.com. And for those of you who are not connected, you can call 855-448-7226. Again, that's uh, Experience Israel this November 2018. It's the European Reformation Tour that's in the summer. So I want to get that get that right. Well, lawmakers are pressing for answers after revelations that the FBI failed to preserve five months of text between two bureau officials under fire for exchanging anti-Trump messages during the 2016 election. Oh, when will it end? The missing message from Peter Stroke and Lisa Page span a crucial window between the presidential transition and the launch of Robert Mueller's Russia probe, where both officials previously were assigned. We need to get to the bottom of it and find out what exactly happened. That's a quote from Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican out of Ohio. Um, outnumbered overtime. He was speaking on the program. Well, the Justice Department acknowledged the lapse in records and uh, turning over 384 pages of new text messages between Stroke and Page, who, who were uh, romantically involved at the time, uh, to congressional committees. FBI, um, the department wants to bring to your attention that the FBI's technical systems for 
retaining text messages sent and received on FBI mobile devices failed to preserve text messages from Mr. Stroke and Ms. Page from December 14th, 2016 to approximately May of 2017. Assistant Attorney General for Legislative Affairs Stephen Boyd wrote to Senate Homeland Security Committee Chairman Ron Johnson, the FBI has informed the Department of Justice that many FBI-provided Samsung 5 mobile devices did not capture or store text messages due to misconfiguration issues related to rollouts, provisioning, and software upgrades that conflict with the FBI's collection capabilities. Now, all of that is a quote. But when asked today whether the FBI failed to preserve text message records on similar Samsung 5 devices belonging to any other FBI officials, because some are scratching their heads saying this sounds suspicious, uh, during that same period, the FBI uh, said no comment. So we don't know one way or the other. A Justice Department spokesman says that the department's Office of Inspector General also does not have any text messages between the two during that same time period. Um, And he declined to comment further uh, on that point. Well, during the window of missing text messages, a lot happened. President Trump took the oath of office. National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, uh, whom Stroke interviewed, was fired. The controversial anti-Trump dossier was published. The president fired FBI Director James Comey. Special Counsel Mueller was uh, appointed to investigate Russian meddling and potential collusion with the Trump campaign associates during the 2016 presidential election. All of that happened during that little blackout period where the emails apparently are no longer accessible. The loss of records from this period is concerning because it is apparent from other records that Mr. Stroke and Ms. Page communicated frequently about the investigation. Johnson wrote uh, in a letter to FBI Director Christopher Ray over the weekend, requesting more information and questioning whether the FBI had done a thorough search of non-FBI devices belonging to the pair during that period. A source on one committee in receipt of the new text messages said that it was outrageous that the FBI had not previously indicated the five-month gap in messages, that it existed at all. The source said it was um, incumbent upon the FBI to prove that the missing texts do not constitute obstruction of congressional oversight or destruction of evidence. Well, last month, the Justice Department released hundreds of text messages between the pair, Stroke and Page, that they had traded. Both served for a short period of time on Mueller's team, uh, with uh, Page leaving uh, over the summer and Stroke being reassigned late last year to the FBI's Human Resource Division after the discovery of the exchange with his former girlfriend. Many of the texts revealed a clear anti-Trump and pro-Clinton bias, made some reference to an insurance policy that wasn't clarified in those texts. Representative Jordan said Monday that this lapse in documents is reminiscent of the mysterious disappearance of emails from former IRS official Lois Lerner during the Obama-era IRS Tea Party targeting scandal. Lerner's emails disappeared during congressional investigations. Uh, The Lerner thing was huge, Jordan said. My gut tells me this is probably bigger. Well, it's like chewing your cud. You know, it starts out a certain size, and then it, the longer you chew, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and one wonders if it will, in fact, ever end. And then, finally, with regard to probes into this or that, that may explain why nothing else is, or very little else is getting done in, in Congress in Washington. On Thursday, Republican members of the House took to Twitter to call for the release of a classified intelligence memo they say could blow the lid off the Russian collusion investigation. House Intelligence Committee Republicans voted to make a classified report on FISA abuse available to House members who could read the report behind closed doors. Representative Matt Gates. He stated that the memo challenged the very foundations of democracy. Now, is that an overstatement? 
Or is that an accurate statement? And he added, if the American people knew what was happening, if they saw the contents of this memo, a lot would become clear about the information that I've been talking about the last several months. Well, the memo concerns the Obama FBI uh, Department of Justice and then candidate Trump. Gates uh, added, I think that this will not end just with firings. I believe there are people who will go to jail. Uh, You don't get to try to undermine our country, undermine our elections, and then simply get fired. Well, he certainly has piqued everyone's uh, curiosity. Representative Mark Meadows uh, stated, and I'm quoting, I viewed the classified report from House Intel relating to the FBI, FISA abuses, the infamous Russian dossier and so-called Russian collusion. What I saw is absolutely shocking, end quote. So what could be in the memo? Now, the memo... um, the memo is a uh, a response to what uh, apparently the the memo's author saw. So it does. It's not the evidence itself. It reflects on and interprets evidence. So what could be in the memo? An educated guess would suggest uh, the memo shows that the FBI initiated its investigation based on the so-called Steele dossier, which is one charge that the Republicans have been making for some time. A compendium of opposition research compiled by Fusion GPS on the instructions of the Democratic National Committee. If it is indeed the case that FISA warrants were requested on the basis of that opposition research from the DNC, that would appear to politicize the FBI in very serious ways. Lee Smith of Tablet Magazine correctly writes, if the FBI and Department of Justice, and this is an if at this point, used a piece of opposition research paid for by a political campaign as evidence for a warrant to intercept the communications of a rival campaign, and the questions asked by congressional investigators suggest they did, then we are now living in a very different America than the one that generations of civil libertarians and small government conservatives alike desired to maintain, and which large majorities in Congress have repeatedly voted for. The DOJ, the FBI and perhaps the CIA would be embroiled in a scandal likely to have long lasting and sweeping consequences for intelligence collection, national security and the safety and privacy of American citizens to say nothing of how it will demoralize federal law enforcement, which will appear to be mired in partisan and political corruption, partisanship rather, and political corruption. Even more disconcerting, he went on to say, is the increasing likelihood that the Steele dossier was used as a platform for a Russian information operation, which successfully managed to leverage nearly the entire American press corps and sections of the security bureaucracy toward the goal of encouraging Americans to rip their own country apart. Buckle your seatbelts. This could, well, this already has been what will continue to be a very bumpy ride. We're going to take a break, but we will return also later in the five o'clock hour. We're going to talk with Dr. Warren Wearsby. His book is titled Delights and Disciplines of uh, Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Fifty minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Warren Wearsby, Dr. Wearsby, will join us later in the five o'clock hour. His book, Delights and, Dis- and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. 
Well, Google says it's discontinuing its fact check feature because it's proved to be too faulty for public use, directly attributing the decision to an investigation by the Daily Caller News Foundation. The company has no date set for when it will return, if ever. We launched the reviewed claims feature at the end of last year as an experiment with the aim of helping people quickly learn more about news publications, a spokesman for Google said, while also adding that the Daily Caller News Foundation was the catalyst for the recent move. We said previously that we encountered uh, challenges in our system that maps fact checks to publishers and on further examination, it's clear that we are unable to deliver the quality we'd like for users, end quote. Well, there were two main problems with the fact check widget, which appeared on the sidebar of Google's research, or rather search results for uh, uh, very few sites and publications. First, the legitimate outlets chosen were virtually all ones with conservative audiences. The Daily Caller, for example, was given such treatment while sites like Vox, Slate, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, several others, clearly on the left side of the political spectrum, were not. Second, and perhaps most importantly, many of the fact checks were wrong. One of the purported reviewed claims was for an article that straightforwardly reported that yet another member of special counsel, Robert Mueller's investigation team, was a donor for former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and former President Obama. Google attributed the fact check to the Washington Post, something its vice president of communications took issue with. We went back and double-checked the story and the information submitted to Google and the Daily Caller was not mentioned at all, even in links, the Washington Post's Kristen Karate said. We clearly labeled the source, so I cannot speak to how the Daily Caller ended up being erroneously listed as the source of the fact check in this case. Hmm. Well, after days of back and forth with representatives at Google, the Daily Caller News Foundation was told it was probably due to the algorithms, something the company doesn't talk about as a matter of internal policy. Well, Google removed that single purported fact check at the time the Daily Caller News Foundation's initial inquiry was made. But there were several others that were also false, if not all of them. For instance, a claim attributed to the Daily Caller by Google's feature and its third-party fact-checking partner Snopes was a transgender woman violated a young girl in a woman's bathroom because uh, bills were passed. That was the statement. A quick read of the news piece shows that there was no mention of a bill of any form of legislation or any form. The story was merely a straightforward reporting of a disturbing incident originally reported on by a local outlet. The whole program has been suspended for the foreseeable future as of Friday. Google engineers are reportedly heading back to the drawing board to see how they can vastly improve a fact check system while it remains to be seen if the company will abandon the project altogether. As we continue to work on addressing this problem and a Assess how best to serve our users. Of course, the problem was one they themselves created. The Google spokeswoman uh, continued, we are putting the experiment on hold. So uh, good, uh, good job by the Daily Caller being vigilant to uh, follow up on what was actually being said erroneously attributed to them. Well, for the past six years, a Texas school district has been waging legal warfare against a group of high school cheerleaders. Uh, who wrote Bible verses on football run-through banners. In October, the Texas Ninth, uh, cur- ninth Court rather of Appeals ruled in favor of the, uh, let's see, it's the Kunsi Independent School District cheerleaders declaring the cheerleaders' speech expressed on the run-through banners is best characterized as the pure private speech of the students. Well, the school district has uh, appealed to the Texas Supreme Court. Instead of siding with the Constitution, the school district sided with the out-of-town atheist 
atheists and banned the cheerleaders from writing Bible verses on the banners. Well, the banners were held by public school cheerleaders while they uh, were cheering for the school's football team, while they were in uniform at the school-sponsored event, and while they were on the school's football field to which access was limited by the school. The school district attorney, Thomas Brandt, wrote. Well, the cheerleaders are represented by First Liberty Institute, one of the nation's top religious liberty firms. Uh, Attorney Jeremy Dice, uh, who's been a guest on this program, told Todd Starnes' radio show the cheerleaders have a right to be able to craft messages of their choosing on paper they purchased using paint they had bought. Uh, This is the private speech of these cheerleaders, and for the school district to censor that speech violates the Constitution, Dice says. The school district has fought us every step along the way. I was reported uh, at, uh, I first reported, he went on to say, uh, the plight of Kunsi cheerleaders in 2012 when the Freedom From Religion Foundation filed a complaint about the run-through banners. Instead of writing inflammatory messages on banners, the cheerleaders decided to write inspirational messages, including Bible verses. And the cheerleaders uh, looked to what they saw as their best source of information, the scriptures, again, Attorney Dice says. Instead of siding with the Constitution, the school district sided with the out-of-town atheists. So the cheerleaders and their parents sued the school district. In the October ruling, Justice Charles Crager, he wrote that um, given the nature of the expressive activity, uh, the hand-drawn, playful paper banner displayed by cheerleaders engaging in an extracurricular activity only momentarily before the football team runs through the banner and utterly destroys it, by the way, it is highly unlikely that the banner would appear to those in attendance at the game to contain a message endorsed by the school, end quote. Well, Attorney Dice told the Tan Stars uh, or Todd Starnes radio show, the school district wants to censor student speech. They would rather censor the message of these cheerleaders than abide by the Constitution, and I find that egregious. I personally find it egregious that the school district is using taxpayer money to fund this vendetta against a group of high school cheerleaders. If the school district wants to bully a bunch of teenage Christians, let them use their own money, as, of course, the cheerleaders would have to in defending their position. Well, we'll uh, continue to follow the story and find out what happens next. Again, the school district has appealed the lower court, the Texas Ninth Court of Appeals ruling uh, in favor of the cheerleaders. Um, That uh, decision has been appealed to the Texas Supreme Court, and we'll uh, follow and let you know uh, what's happening in that case. Now, later in the program, we're going to talk with Dr. Warren Wearsby. His book is titled Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. And we're also going to reflect on the fact today is the 45th anniversary of that infamous decision, Roe versus Wade. President Trump was the first U.S. president to address and a, pro, uh, a pro-life march in 45 years, and he did just that on Friday. The move highlights his shift in recent years from a supporter of women's access to abortion to a, a powerful opponent of it. Um, he addressed the march via satellite from the White House Rose Garden on Friday afternoon. This was in real time, although he wasn't there present at the location. He was at some short distance away uh, at the White House Rose Garden that afternoon. Ronald Reagan, Trump's fellow Republican, made supportive remarks to the march in 1987 via telephone, while George W. Bush, another Republican, twice did the same in 2003 and 2004. Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, told reporters on Wednesday that the president is committed to protecting the life of the unborn, and he is excited to be part of this historic event. Trump was previously a supporter of women's access to abortion. We're going to talk about uh, the fact that today is, as I mentioned, the 40 
35th anniversary of the infamous Supreme Court decisions, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, inventing a constitutional right to abortion on demand. Since then, over 59 million babies, over 59 million babies have lost uh, their lives to abortion. And the U.S. remains one of only seven countries that allows abortions after 20 weeks. The age when studies suggest preborn infants can feel pain. We'll talk more about that at the top um, at the top of the hour. Uh, All right. Also, I should mention that we're going to talk with uh, Larry Gadbaugh tomorrow. He's the CEO of First Image. We'll talk about the Sanctity of Human Life Week, which this is. Uh, Sunday was Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I had the opportunity to attend Speak Life 18 with uh, uh, Governor Huckabee. It was a great event. I should say events. I attended in Portland. I had the opportunity to participate as the MC. Uh, It played a very small role in what was a great event involving lots of other people, but it was well attended. And that was followed, of course, by an event at 7 o'clock p.m. last night in Salem and then in Medford. And at that event, uh, my understanding is it was sold out. We had a good crowd. One estimate from someone whose judgment I trust said about 650 people were there in the Portland area. I'm not sure about uh, about Salem, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, at the top of the hour as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back five minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, and we're glad to have you with us. Today, we're going to talk with Warren Wearsby. I should say Dr. Warren Wearsby. He's the author of some 175 plus books, his latest Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. A great resource if you're not quite sure how to navigate through the Bible. We'll talk with him. Uh, later in the next segment of today's program. So looking forward to that. Well, 45 years ago today, the Supreme Court issued its decision in Roe versus Wade and the companion decision, Doe versus Bolton, inventing a constitutional right to abortion on demand. Many of those, or at least several of those 13 robed judges at the time, had Uh, indicated that it was not a very good decision, but it has been made. Since then, over 59 million babies have been lost to abortion, and the U.S. remains one of the only seven countries that allows abortion after 20 weeks, the age when studies suggest an unborn child, a preborn infant, can feel pain. Yet there remains cause for hope. Monica Burke says this past Friday, tens of thousands of Americans gathered in Washington, D.C. for the 45th annual March for Life. Now, you wouldn't really know that because you didn't see much coverage of it in order to show their support for women facing unplanned pregnancies as well as the unborn and to bear witness to the 59 million who have been lost. This year's theme was Love Saves Lives. It served as a reminder that love has the ability to overcome all obstacles and grant women and children the opportunity to experience life. To the full. If you want to know about what fuels the pregnancy resource centers, I think that's a great theme to describe what they do and why they do it. And as I mentioned, tomorrow we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh, who is the CEO of First Image uh, on uh, Sanctity of Human Life Week. He represents uh, the Portland metro area pregnancy resource centers, but they are scattered throughout Oregon and Washington, and they serve day by day without any uh, public money. There's no federal funding available for them. They are fueled and motivated by the understanding of the sanctity of human life and the love of those they serve. Well, this year's march was an historic one. 
Presidents Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush addressed the March for Life via phone during their respective terms. President Trump became the first president to address the March for Life rally via broadcast from the Rose Garden. The March for Life is a movement born out of love. You love your families, you love your neighbors, you love our nation, and you love every child born and unborn. Because you believe that every life is sacred, that every child is a precious gift from God, the president told the crowd. This was on Friday. Congress was in session during the March for Life this year. As people gathered at the National Mall before the march, the House passed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act over on Capitol Hill. The bill ensures that children who survive failed abortions are treated as persons and given appropriate medical care. The bill augments a 2002 law by providing for criminal consequences for health care providers that fail to care for an infant who is born alive. Treating a baby that is born alive after an abortion with the same medical care as any other newborn should not be controversial. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan addressed the crowds uh, shortly after the bill had passed, saying, you know, I've been participating in the March for Life for years. One thing that has always struck me, and there's one thing that strikes me again right now, is the vigor and the enthusiasm of the pro-life movement. Looking out on this crowd, I can see there are people here of all ages from all walks of life. But the young people here is what is so inspiring because it tells me this is a movement that is on the rise. And he's right. Millennials are increasingly pro-life and a recent poll showed that 76 percent of Americans support substantial limits on abortion. Among the 51 percent of citizens that identify as pro-choice, 60 percent support restrictions on abortion. Approximately 2,200 pregnancy resource centers nationwide provide women not only with the physical resources necessary to choose life, but the emotional support, the social networks that they need. Lawmakers at the state and federal level have passed common sense laws to protect children everywhere except for Oregon. And the day before the march, the Department of Health and Human Services announced a new division charged with protecting the conscience of medical professionals who will not participate in abortions. And although the pro-life movement is already changing the culture. The March for Life was a reminder that there's, there remains much to be done. In order for women to have access to as many resources as possible, pregnancy resource centers and faith-based adoption agencies, they need to be free to operate according to their mission and their conscience. And uh, additional measures n- need to be taken to protect the conscience of pro-life medical personnel as well. The pro-life movement will continue to fight for life on all of these fronts. On the anniversary of Roe Ro and Doe, I should say, we remember the millions of children who have been denied their first and most fundamental right, the right to life. But we also reflect on the truth and beauty of the pro-life cause that every human life, no matter how small or weak, has inherent dignity and value. Until our laws reflect this most essential truth, we'll continue to gather and march thousands strong to proclaim the joy of the pro-life message. While we sorrow for what is lost, we hope for what is to come and have all love to bring healing to all who have been affected by the pain of abortion. Today marks the anniversary of that infamous decision. The weekend before last, last Oregon Right to Life sponsored an event, a rally at Pioneer Courthouse Square, and hundreds of people gathered to bear witness to the 59 million. It's really more than 59 million. Some refer to it as 60 million babies, each a distinct individual created in the image of God, forming in their mother's wombs, their lives taken because 13 robed Supreme Court justices said, Yeah, there's a constitutional right to do just that. Last night, I had the opportunity, or yesterday afternoon, rather, I had the opportunity to attend Oregon Life um, United, their event. 
that not only uh, bore witness to the loss of life and reflected on the infamous decisions uh, that were made on a uh, national scale, but also on what's happening right here in the state of Oregon. The fact that in the state of Oregon, your tax dollars go to fund abortions. Uh, Now, Oregon health plan abortions are paid for by Oregon tax dollars. And if I have my numbers right, about 10 per day are underwritten by your tax dollars. Now, you might be aware of the fact that there was an effort um, a couple of years ago to place this issue on the ballot. This was the second round in 1984. I've mentioned here several times that I was part of that effort to try to stop state funding of abortion in the state of Oregon. We fell short. Um, I think we have a much better chance this time around, but there is uh, there had been an effort that uh, fell short of gathering signatures. Now, there was an actual ballot measure back in 84, but uh, most recently there was an effort to put the question on the ballot. And because of some political um, maneuvering uh, in uh, in Salem, they made it impossible for that um, that goal to be met. This time around, Uh, There's an effort to place it on the ballot in 2018, and there are already, I believe, if I have my numbers right, 92,000 signatures have already been collected. 117 are required. So there's a a significant length of time to make that mark. And uh, one of the focuses of the event uh, last night with Governor Huckabee was to encourage people to take up the gauntlet and uh, to finish the job of getting the signatures so that this uh, this question will be put to Oregonians and will be on the ballot, giving us the opportunity to stop state funding of abortion. It's one thing if you believe abortion is something women ought to have the right to pursue. It's another thing to require those who just uh, dis- vehemently disagree to to pay for it through their tax dollars. So I would encourage you to go to Oregon Life uh, United to their website, OregonLifeUnited.com. Uh, petitions are now being circulated. They are available. And I would challenge you to do something perhaps you've never done before. Request a petition and circulate it among people you know would support this effort. Now, you don't necessarily have to be pro-life. There are people who would describe themselves as uh, favoring abortion, uh, and yet they don't favor underwriting abortion with tax dollars. And so there's an opportunity to have an influence here. Do something a little different. Step out and courage. Be a little bit bold. Expect that you might uh, face some opposition. But let's put this question on the ballot. And I've asked um, Jeff Jemerson to uh, to check in with me, maybe as frequently as uh, every week, to talk about where this effort stands. Uh, it's one thing to say that we're pro-life. It's another thing to do something constructive uh, to make that point and to give Oregonians the opportunity to say, well, we cannot end abortion in Oregon, given the Supreme Court decision. We can move in the direction of um, divesting in the uh, the tax dollars that are, are currently going to pay for it. So anyway, um, that uh, that was the event that I attended last night. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Governor Huckabee as he spoke, as well as uh, as others. I was very impressed with Jeff Jemerson. He is a very humble man who... Um, just in his time of reflection and prayer and and, uh, devotions, felt called to uh, undertake this effort. And it's been uh, quite a remarkable journey for him. Up next, we're going to talk with uh, Dr. Warren Wearsby. His book, Delights and Disciplines of the Bible, a Bible study, rather, a guidebook for studying God's word. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, prolific Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe has written a guidebook for studying God's Word, Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study. Best-selling author, pastor, radio host, Dr. Wiersbe, uh, shares his delight in God's Word in this comprehensive, highly accessible guide to biblical interpretation and application. In Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. Dr. Wearsby offers insight into the history, meaning, and context of the entire Bible from Genesis through the Gospels through the last words of the Apostles. As readers develop skills in studying the Bible, they'll also experience the joy of richer spiritual devotion. The book equips readers with the tools needed to get the most out of their Bible study and includes adventure ins- assignments rather at the end of each chapter to help readers study, interpret, and experience the Bible like never before. As Dr. Wearsby writes, reading the Bible should never be a burden. Instead, it's an adventurous journey into the heart of God. Well, Dr. Warren Wearsby is an internationally known Bible teacher and former pastor of three churches, including the Moody Bible Church in Chicago. For 10 years, he served as general director and Bible teacher for Back to the Bible radio broadcast. Dr. Wearsby has written more than 175 books, including the popular B series of uh, expositional Bible studies, which has sold more than 4 million copies. In 2002, he was awarded the Jordan Lifetime Achievement Award by the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association. He and his wife, Betty, live in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today, we talk with him by phone about his latest book, Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study. Dr. Wearsby, it is an honor to have you with us today. Well, it's a delight to be here and to hear your voice. Well, thank you so much. Well, when I just read that you have written 175 books, I'm exhausted just just telling our listeners about it. But we are so grateful that you have been prolific in drawing God's people to God's Word. Well, that's what they've done for me. When I, I was saved at a Youth for Christ rally many years ago, I was 16 years old, mm. Billy Graham was the preacher, but it was at a time in life when a lot of folks didn't know him. And uh, he, uh, he preached the Word, and I got saved that night. And I fell in love with my Bible and just wanted to study it and study it and study it. Now, I, I so appreciate that history. You fell in love with the Bible. Why do you think people today are lax in Bible study? Is it the word study that prevents people from digging into God's Word? Or do we just lack appreciation or ability to open God's Word and fully uh, understand it? Uh, I think a little bit of both. Um, our pastors, I've pastored three churches, and Pastors have to create an appetite. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever you do in a local church that creates an appetite, it's going to succeed. If you create an appetite for cartoons or something, you got to keep giving them. And when the pastor is one who studies the Word and then shows them how to study it for themselves, then things begin to happen. I just thank God that after I was a I became a Christian when I was 16, some of the adults in our church set up a Bible study. One of the men had a gift of teaching, and that got me started on the right track. Mm. Now, as I mentioned, you've written 175 books. Why did you write Delights and Discipline of, uh, Disciplines of Bible Study? Why do you think that's an important book at this time? Well, I have to be honest, I was having breakfast uh, one morning with one of the editors from David C. Cook, 
And he looked at me and he said, you know, you've written a commentary on every book in the Bible. Why don't you write a book on how to study the Bible? No answer. (laughs) (laughs) So I swallowed my coffee and I said, well, maybe you've got a point there. And I did. I went to work uh, to try to set up something that would be different from the usual, now you better do this, you better do that, you know, that kind of thing. I, I want the reader of this book to imagine he's sitting across the table from me at breakfast and we're talking about the Lord and his word. Now, is the Bible intended for new believers, for those who have never, who have been uh, Christians, but never have engaged in Bible study as an individual or in a group setting? How would you suggest this is best used? Well, I think all four are important. Uh, When I, um, as I said, when I became a Christian, they set up this Thursday night Bible study and I attended and I thought, my, this is wonderful. And then, of course, the church I was uh, in uh, was teaching the Word of God, so that all around me was this, I don't like the word pressure, but opportunity may be a better word, to just grow in the Word of God. If you've got time for a funny story, I I went to the public library the Thursday after the Saturday I was saved, hoping they would have some kind of help. And lo and behold, there on the shelf was a Schofield study Bible uh, that's been around for centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I took, nobody had ever taken it out. So I took it out. And I was walking back home and ran into my cousin, Louise, and she said, what are you doing walking around on Thursday with a Bible? So I explained to her, oh, she said, well, that makes sense. And I began to read that study Bible, and it just overwhelmed me, Mm. just overwhelmed me. And I've been doing it ever since. Mm. Now, you uh, mentioned that Bible study should be an adventure and not an affliction. I think for a lot of people, it feels more like an affliction because they don't quite know how to go about it. Explain how the Bible, uh, studying the Bible can be an adventure. Well, it begins, first of all, with uh, appreciation. Uh, Every day we need to say, thank you, Lord, for giving us the Word. Because in the Word, we'd have everything we need to know about Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Church, and ourselves. And uh, every day, if we take time to study or read, but then study, uh, something in the Word of God, have a schedule. I began usually in Genesis 1 and Psalm 1 and Matthew 1 and read three chapters a day. Now, maybe you can't do that. I may have more time. But as I work my way through the Bible, I discover an amazing thing. One part tells you about another part. And I have had just delight in tracing down truth in the Bible in the different places of the Bible. The um, uh, chapters in your book are very practical. Why study the Bible? Are you ready for serious Bible study? The tools available and so on. What do you need to do to be ready for serious Bible study? Uh, to devote time to it. There is there's no substitute for studying the Word of God. I uh, used to tell the teenagers when I was in Youth for Christ, 
that they will be very, very smart to get to know their Bible because they're going to meet it in English literature, American literature, in college, in high school. Uh, I remember when we were had to read um, uh, Moby Dick. I don't know if you had to read it when you were in high school, but we had to read Moby Dick. The first sentence in Moby Dick is, Call me Ishmael. Now, uh, most of the people in that class didn't know who Ishmael was and what's he got to do with this book anyway. But Ishmael comes out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So if you know your Bible, you're going to know Shakespeare better. You're going to know hymnody better, and not only that, but drama. The Word of God shows up all over the place. Therefore, a knowledge of the Bible not only makes you a better Christian and a better person, it helps you get through school. We're talking about Delights and Disciplines of the Bible, a guidebook for studying God's Word. What are some of the tools that are available to help us understand the Scriptures as we are studying? I think it's important in uh, studying the Word of God to have a, a Bible you can read. Now, it may be a study Bible. I don't know. I have in my own library, uh, I think it's 15 different study Bibles. And they're all pretty much alike. They have maps and charts and explanations, and they're helpful, very helpful. But a person should have a Bible that he or she can read and enjoy and understand. Now, there's so many translations out there. You choose the one that talks to you. So you have to start with the Word of God. You've got to take time, and that's that's a valuable thing. My time is the most important thing I have. And the older I get, the more I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You have to have time, and then we've got to say, okay, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for one half hour or whatever, I am going to study my Bible. Not just read it, but study it. And I explain what that study is in one of the chapters. I found Bible study to be a very rewarding thing. Day after day, a verse would jump out at me just when I needed it. Now, the Holy Spirit does things like that. To me, uh, Bible study is not a burden. It's an adventure. Uh, That's why at the end of each of these chapters, I invite the uh, student, the reader, to uh, do a certain thing with his or her Bible. And after a while, you get addicted. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Dr. Warren Wiersbe, his latest book of 175, Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Dr. Warren Wiersbe. He's an internationally known Bible teacher and former pastor of three churches, including Moody Church in Chicago. For 10 years, he served as general director and Bible teacher for Back to the Bible radio broadcast. He's written more than 175 books, including the popular B-series. Today, we're talking about his latest, Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word, which is, in fact, an adventure. 
Now, in the book, you actually walk your readers through the Bible. I think one of the things that makes Bible study challenging is we don't understand the structure of the Bible. It's 66 books. They're not all the same. Um, you have your, your uh, prophets and you have poetry, and it's confusing to the reader who's not familiar with, uh, with the scriptures and how the Bible is, um, is constructed. Uh, so talk a little bit about the structure of the Bible and why it's important for us to understand what we're reading as we're reading through the Bible. Well, the Bible starts at the beginning, in the beginning God, and it ends at the end when God will make a new heavens and a new earth, and uh, we'll have a new home and new bodies. It's uh, something to look forward to. In between, you have um, the Jews, the Gentiles, and the church. Uh, These are the three groups that are emphasized in the Word of God. Many different nations are mentioned, of course, and people. But those are the three major things. We start off with, in the beginning, God. What did he do? He made everything in creation. And we are living in this marvelous thing that we call the world, And it is something that we need the Bible for, so we know where we're going and how to get there. The the Bible is a handbook. It's a it's a uh, a dinner set out on the table. Take your choice. It's a challenge. There are some places where you're going to find yourself chuckling. It's just little humor God got that God put in there. So. When you study the Word of God and go from chapter to chapter in book by book, it's amazing. You say, well, now, wait a minute. This sounds just like what I read in that other book. Oh, you've discovered the cross-references. That's one of my joyful experiences in Bible study. I have a book that has, I don't know how many, tens of thousands of cross-references in it. I recommend that in... um, Chapter 3, I've got a list list of tools every uh, Bible student ought to have, and this is called the, uh, uh, the, the Take Two on This, and this particular book is called The um, New Treasury of Spiritual Knowledge, Scripture Knowledge. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands, of cross-references And I've been telling people for a long time, cross-references teach us each reference and how it fits in. You're reading along, and somebody says this, and you say, that sounds familiar. And you check the reference, and you go back to the Old Testament or over into the New Testament. And it's exciting. I find it very exciting. Now, maybe some people won't, but I certainly do. And I've enjoyed it for all these years. I know that for for lots of people who are studying the Bible, they're not really sure what ultimately the purpose of. I mean, obviously, we get instruction and how to live to understand God and and ourselves. What should be our goal as we open the word each day um, in, in helping us to not only understand um, what historically has happened in Scripture, but our, our understanding of who Jesus is and our relationship to him? What should be our goal? Well, we have to remember what the Bible really is. To begin with, the Bible is a conversation. God is talking to us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Uh, We can't get very far in the classroom if 
uh, the teacher is, speak, is uh, speaking Swedish, and we only know German. <laughs> the Word of God just talks to us. You sit down, and you open it, and you have a conversation from God. God says, here we go. That's important. But, you know, the Word of God is compared to water in the Scriptures, which means it has a cleansing effect. I used to tell people when they came to talk about their failures, I said, now look, don't dwell on your failures. You've sinned against the Lord. Ask Him to forgive you and get your Bible open, and it'll wash your mind clean. And it does. It gives you that new beginning. Uh, the Word of God is compared to food. We should we should dwell upon this. If if we if all we do is drink the milk of the Word, that is the very easy parts, uh, we're not going to get very far. But we have to learn how to chew on the meat of the Word. I like the fact that the Word of God is called a light, a lamp unto my feet. I don't know about you, but I. <laughs> I don't have any sense of direction. Do you? <laughs> Not hardly. Well, my my wife, bless her heart, we've been in all parts of the world, and she always exa- knows exactly which way we're supposed to go. <laughs> I have two directions, up and down, that's it. <laughs> and when I read my Bible, the light comes on, and, and that light guides me. And I'm walking, and the light says, wait a minute, and it starts getting dimmer and dimmer, and I say, oh, I better get back to that Bible, because I think I'm going in the wrong direction. The most practical book for reading and studying is the Word of God. As you've described it, if we are not in God's Word, we're followers of Christ, and we're not in His Word, then we are... Um, our, our vision is is um, dim, if not blind altogether. Uh, we're malnourished, and there are consequences for failing to study God's Word as well. This is true. Uh, there ought to be in our hearts really an appetite for the Word of God, to, to be able to just say, I'm, I'm going to devour, I'm going to have some devouring of good nourishment from the book of Ruth or whatever, when they find out, as they study the Bible, when, and as I found out as a young Christian, when you find out that this book is amazing, you'd think the people who wrote these things, led by the Holy Spirit, knew us, because uh, they, they hit the nail right on the head. So I keep reading, and when I'm through, I go back. When I have to study something, as for a sermon or an article or a book, uh, I have to dig deeper, but the Holy Spirit always helps you. And yes. when I find myself uh, climbing the wall instead of climbing a ladder up to heaven, uh, I call on some older Christian. I thank God for my elderly friends. I'm one of them now, but I, uh, elderly friends who have put me in the right track. Now, as I mentioned, you have authored more than 175 books. You've been a Bible teacher. You've been a pastor. uh, You've served in leadership. You've instructed others in God's Word. Do you still study the Bible uh, on a daily basis, and is it still important to you today? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, When I finish reading through the Bible in my devotional time, uh, I go back and start all over but during that time that I've been going through the Bible, I'm taking notes. I'm, I, have, I keep little pieces of paper. 
or I never throw paper away. I always cut it down to a good little piece and and, and I keep notes. And it's amazing. I'd be working on something and say, wait a minute, I've got a whole stack of notes on this. So it's uh, it's a challenge to just read what you've read before and not say, well, I've read this before. No, what is new here to me? And this is an experience that's just marvelous. I was reading, when I wrote this book, I was reading in the Gospel of John and could not believe how dumb I was. <laughs> I just simply had to confess there were things I found there that I didn't even know were there. Mm. New every morning. Well, once again, the book is titled Delights and Disciplines of Bible Study, a guidebook for studying God's Word. Dr. Warren Wearsby, it's such an honor and a delight to talk with you today. Thank you for continuing to write and encourage all of us to focus our minds and our hearts on God's Word. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you, and God bless you, and keep broadcasting. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Warren Wearsby, such a familiar voice. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll come back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I found an interesting uh, article in Christianity Today that pointed out that fewer than half in the country, just two out of every five Americans, believe clergy are honest and have high ethical standards. That's according to a recent Gallup poll. That, of course, does not reflect the truth on the ground, but it's an interesting perspective worthy of of uh, considering that level of trust has dropped steadily since 2009, down from a high of 67 percent in 1985, according to the pollster. Pastors are now seen as less trustworthy than judges at 43 percent, daycare providers at 46 percent, police officers at 56 percent, pharmacists at 62 percent, medical doctors 65 percent, grade school teachers at 66 percent, military officers at 71 and nurses at 82 percent. Well, according to religious breakdowns of the data provided to Christianity Today. Self-identified Christians, 776 respondents, are nearly twice as likely as non-Christians to still have faith in their faith leaders. Well, I suppose the explanation of that would be you actually know them rather than a perception based on uh, perhaps sensational stories of strangers you do not know directly. And while nearly half of Christians say pastors had high ethical standards, only a quarter of non-Christians agreed. Christians also indicated strong Stronger support of military officers, with nearly uh, officers rather, with nearly three quarters finding them trustworthy. Significantly more than non-Christians, seventy-four percent for believers, sixty-three percent for unbelievers. Christians were also more likely to trust police officers at fifty-nine percent versus forty-six percent. Auto mechanics at 35% and business executives. Uh, Non-Christians, on the other hand, preferred grade school teachers at 71%. uh, Christians at about 5% less than that. Judges and newspaper reporters as well. By the way, those numbers were 32 and 23% respectively. Three of the professions rated highest for honesty and ethical standards are in the healthcare field, nurses, medical doctors, and pharmacists, a a trend that has been the case in recent years, according to Gallup. And while the clergy are not at the bottom of the list of professions. This year's rating represent a new low for a profession which um, image problems uh, with image problems in recent years. Despite the shrinking trust around clergy in particular, the church overall has maintained its reputation, according to a 2017 finding uh, from the Pew Research Center. Americans view the impact of religious institutions more positively than colleges, labor unions, banks, or the media, and their reputation has changed little during the political shifts over the past 
few years. Nurses have topped the ethical professions list almost uh, uh, every year since they began appearing on the survey back in 1999. At the other end of the list, lobbyists are consistently ranked lowest by Christians, non-Christians, and members of every political party. Both Christians and non-Christians are also unlikely to trust members of Congress, 11% for both car salesmen at 11%, um, uh, advertisers, and uh, and so on. It's an interesting lineup. Now, this is based, of course, on people's perceptions rather than what they actually know to be the case. But the lineup, once again, nurses at the top, military officers, followed by grade school teachers, medical doctors, pharmacists, police officers, and clergy. Just below uh, clergy, daycare providers, judges, auto mechanics, nursing home operators, bankers, local office holders, newspaper reporters, TV reporters, State office holders, and this is in the order that they appeared uh, below uh, clergy, uh, state office holders, business executives, lawyers, advertising practitioners, members of Congress, car salespeople, and lobbyists at the lowest uh, 6%. Now, again, this is not based on uh, facts. This is based on perception, and I suppose perception influences how you approach these different uh, professions, and we're primarily uh, concerned with the perception of clergy. Last year, pastors ranked among the leaders Americans believed could generate healthy conversations about societal issues. Earlier surveys have indicated that Americans view professional athletes as more impactful than faith leaders which is certainly reason for concern, along with noting drops in pastors' trustworthiness in 2012 and 2013. Gallup also found that dynamic pastors are less of a draw for churchgoers than the sermon message itself, which may be surprising to uh, some as well. Again, we're talking about perhaps uninformed perceptions, but perceptions nonetheless that will influence uh, an individual or groups of individuals um, likelihood of approaching uh, clergy uh, in the event of questions or problems and so on. And again, this is generalizing the sample group was relatively small, but I thought it was at least of some interest. Uh, taking a look at uh, what's coming up this week on the program tomorrow, we're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh. He is the chief executive officer at First Image. We're going to talk about Sanctity of Human Life Week. Yesterday, of course, was uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and today is the anniversary of uh, the passage of the infamous Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton Supreme Court decisions. We talked a little bit about that earlier in the program. We're going to talk with Larry Gadbaugh about the uh, the movement from uh, 45 years ago to the present. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Nancy Piercy. She's the author of Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She's one of the few people I would absolutely trust to take on the subject in a conversation on radio. So I'm looking forward to talking with her on Wednesday. Thursday, we'll have our our um, annual cross-international radiothon. And this gives you an opportunity for the first time in uh, 2018 to draw your attention to the needs of some uh, parts of the world where we uh, can can help. And these generally are, um, are areas where uh, the need is great. There isn't resource available to uh, provide a relief from the suffering that uh, many in these areas experience. And so we have the opportunity um, to focus uh, here and to meet a need that we may not have been previously aware of. We're going to be focusing on, focusing rather on a famine in Africa, and in particular, two tribes that have been impacted are the Maasai uh, and the Turkana 
uh, tribes. They've lost their animals, and once they're gone, they have nothing, no income, no resource to buy food, and so on. There is a drought there. It's been going on for 18 months. It's affected areas in Kenya and South Sudan. There has uh, been no rain, and there's no expectation of rain until March or April of this year. The United Nations is calling this the worst humanitarian crisis in these African nations since 1945, and yet most of us know little or nothing about it. Well, Cross International will join me in studio to draw our attention there and to give us uh, some opportunity to respond. They have partners in these areas, uh, and they are begging for help. People are already dying from this crisis, and people who are still living see what uh, lies ahead, and death for them is looming. Uh, Food is purchased in-country. It's trucked into those regions that are hardest hit due to restrictions on imported food, and the waiting period is much, much shorter under those circumstances. So that's coming up on Thursday for our annual Cross International Radiothon. I hope you'll make an effort to uh, to listen. We'll be broadcasting both hours, so if you can listen to both, or at least a portion of, you can get uh, some idea of that particular crisis and what you can do to help. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Can I ask you to remember... Uh, Luis and Pat Palau as he is uh, uh, facing uh, stage four lung cancer and he has asked us to pray for him and his family. I know others are facing serious uh, medical diagnoses as well. We need to pray for one another and do remember the Palau's. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll talk tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.